Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of EMEA at Edge 10, Dave Carolan, Lecturer in Football Science at Solent University, Chris Neville, and Independent Sports Scientist, Chris Barnes. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this is the third of a series of monthly roundtables that I started a couple of months ago back in July. So the first one was a hamstring roundtable. The second one, which was last month in August, was a youth football roundtable. And this month, in September, is the senior football roundtable. So we've got three guys. We've got Chris Neville, who used to work at England, uh, Blackburn Rovers, etc., LA Galaxy. Then we've got Chris Barnes, one of the pioneers of sports science from the 90s with Middlesbrough uh, and now is um, independent sports scientist. And then Dave Carolan, who's got vast experience as well from Stoke City to Birmingham, Derby, etc., etc., Norwich, etc. So really pleased to get these guys on who have got countless years experience between them. And we discuss a number of things from the new wave of performance coaches, um, what skills coaches need to succeed in 2019, um, dealing with the modern player, uh, employing staff, what kind of qualities they look for in the the staff that they've employed in the past that they would employ in the future, Um, working with different managers and how how philosophies change in management and how that then impacts on what these guys do as as coaches um sports technology so loads of different subjects that i run past these guys and get some really really interesting insights from guys that have been there and done it um and have subsequently left full-time roles in football um some looking to get back in maybe some not um so really interesting round table with these guys which i'm sure you'll really enjoy This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. 
I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So just before I hand you over to Dave, Chris and Chris, just want to say a big thanks to the FA, the Football Association, for supporting this podcast and making it super easy for me to get these guys on to talk about their vast experience. So big thanks to the guys at the FA. So without further ado, over to the episode of Chris Neville, Chris Barnes and Dave Carolan. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Chris Neville, Chris Barnes and Dave Carolan. So welcome to the podcast, guys, and thank you for giving up your evening to have a chat about your experiences in football. Evening, Rob. Evening, Rob. Hi, Rob. Thank you very much. So, um, Nevs, I'm going to come to you first. So in true podcast tradition, just getting you guys to um, give us a bit of an overview of your background education and most importantly what you're currently doing uh so i started um in football um back end of the 90s um at west brom and birmingham city i initially trained as a sports therapist uh then went back to university and did a sports science degree in the early 2000s um was initially employed at portsmouth football club um and then went over to the state, States, middle of the 2000s, um, spent some time in, in Los Angeles, came back to Pompey. Um, my last role in full-time football was up at Blackburn, Blackburn Rovers. Um, I've held a kind of variety of positions, I suppose, um, from therapy, rehabilitation, sports science, strength and conditioning, so on. So, um, yeah, and currently uh, I've Finished at Blackburn in 2017 and came back down to Southampton, which is where I live. Um, and I work at university in Southampton at Solent University, lecturing in football science, a new course which we launched last year. Excellent. So just one, one little one little question on that, Nevs. Um, LA, was that with the Galaxy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> and that was when Beckham went out? Is that the same time? Uh, it, I think he was, he'd started the year before. So... Uh, I think he went out in 2017, uh, sorry, 2007. I was there in 2008. Okay, nice. So just hand over to you, Barnsley, a bit of uh, background, et cetera. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, a bit like Chris, I mean, I've been in football since the mid to late 90s when I joined Middlesbrough. Uh, and I guess I've got uh, a player called Fabrizio Ravanelli to thank for that. Um, he was a player at Middlesbrough for one season, um, during the mid-90s. Famous season when they, they got to two cup finals and they got relegated. So Rav decided that um, he didn't want to play in the second tier. But on departure, he had a long talk with the chairman regarding things he felt that the club might do a little bit differently. And one of, one of them related to um, what was a relatively new dark art of their sports science. So... Um, Steve, the chairman, being the man he was, uh, went out and researched this and came back and decided that, yes, uh, in addition to building a new training ground, he was going to create a culture that uh, embraced sports science. And my introduction came via uh, a contact 
uh, at the club, the cardiologist who I'd done a little bit of research with, I was working in the university at the time. Um, and we had a, a number of long conversations which led to meetings, which led to me being offered a job that I, I really didn't have a clue what the job was or how, <laughs> how to go about it. Uh, but I was employed as a full-time sports scientist in Middlesbrough at the time. Um, I spent 12 years with Middlesbrough, really enjoyable years. Um, we, we asked an awful lot of questions. We didn't find a huge number of answers. We made so many mistakes. The great thing was at the time, people didn't realize we were making mistakes because nobody had tried some of these things before. And then I left uh, Middlesbrough around about 2009 and uh, decided to have a go um, independently, um, a little bit for my own sanity, a lot for my family. Uh, and I've been independent for the last 10 years. Uh, and what that's allowed me to do is continue to work in football at several clubs over the time. So um, Newcastle and then West Bromwich Albion, uh, Queen's Park Rangers, and most recently uh, Nottingham Forest. Um, I still do a bit of work with Bronby in Denmark, which is Fascinated from fascinating from a, a cultural point of view, really the contrast between the two countries, and then uh, other roles that I currently have. Um, I employed as a sports scientist with UEFA, helping deliver their study group scheme. Again, really interesting work because you interact with nations with varying degrees of maturity when it comes to sports science and the physical curriculum. Um, that has kind of led to a little bit of work that we've just started with CAF, uh, Confederation of African Football, introducing uh, their first introduction to some of the newer technologies. Um, for the last five years, I've worked as a consultant for uh, one of the big GPS companies, Catapult. Um, and then finally, something that I guess you do as you get older is I found myself getting drawn into work, working with younger practitioners, uh, helping mentor them through professional accreditation uh, with bases. And so this, this is where I am now. Excellent. Happy days. So over to you, Dave. Well, I follow that. I mean, two high-class practitioners and uh, a little old me. And yeah, I'm another child of the 90s. I, uh, I transitioned into football in um, 1998, having done a, a bit of work as uh, as a sports scientist and a sports therapist. I keep that under my hat quite a lot over the years. Um, but yeah, same as Nev. Um, yeah, worked uh, worked as a therapist in the early days as well as a sports scientist. Transitioned into football at Norwich in 1998, and uh, yeah, it's been a a nice journey of 21 unbroken years until January this year when I left Stoke. And in between times, uh, I spent time at Derby, um, on Nev's old stomping ground at uh, Birmingham City, and actually had seven uh, very interesting years at Colchester United as well. Um, I think all along the way has been a great Great learning of um, of learning off players and learning off managers and becoming a practitioner. As as Chris said, we, we made so many mistakes along the way because we had nobody to learn off. Um, and the great thing for the modern practitioner is 
they've had all of these quality people um, go before them who've uh, who've really created a pathway for them to come along behind us and uh, and push forward even further. And what are you doing now, Dave? Currently, um, I'm with Edge Ten, who are a um, a provider of AMS and uh, electronic management um, uh, software. Um, so I'm the head of uh, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. So having a really interesting time learning new skills and, and actually taking a lot of the skills I've learned as a practitioner over the years and uh, helping the company produce the products which uh, which it needs to take to market. Excellent. So I'm going to stick with you, Dave, and it'd be wrong of me to get you three on and not take advantage of the unbelievable experiences that you've all had and try to reflect that onto the, the kind of new wave of, of performance coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, sports scientists, whatever you want to call them, of 2019. So sticking with you, Dave, like I say, from your experience, as we've discussed coming through the um, the 90s to 2000s when there wasn't many people to actually learn from, there was no Twitter, there was no social media, there was no probably access to um, papers everywhere that you can you know go searching now, Google, etc. When it comes to professional skills of the practitioner in 2019, what do you think are the key ones for you that make a that will make someone a success or potential success? I think for the modern practitioner, it's it's not a lot different in terms of professional skills to what we probably had to have years ago, which is you know you still had to know your theory, so you need to still be qualified, and and the modern practitioner is, is even more highly qualified than we were. Um, but yeah, certainly theory is the underpinning to everything that you do. Um, sports science uh, relies on that to, to allow us to, to work in all the different aspects and all the different disciplines that we perform in, whether it's nutrition or performance analysis or, or strength conditioning and so on. Um, so you certainly have to know your theory. We also have to know how to apply it and how, why, when, um, all the different methodologies that you might use as well but probably most importantly is you you need to know people and you need to know how to build relationships with people i think that those have held true coaching from time immemorial and and they should do for the for the coming years ahead so i think knowing your stuff knowing how to apply it and and knowing how to work with people are certainly the three key professional skills and uh, they're also part of the journey as well. Um, you start with the theory, and by the end of it, you're learning about the people. Um, and the longer you spend in the game, the more different people you come across, both as athletes and players, and as coaches and managers. Over the over the time that you've been a obviously up until January this year, looking back, is there anything professionally that you would have done differently along that along that journey? Um. Well, certainly being based out in Norwich for, for 10 years, my ability to network with other professionals was probably diminished. Um, transport wasn't always the easiest uh, to get from Norwich to anywhere else. And because there were so, so few of us at the time, the distance you would have to travel. So um, if you take the, the early days, there would be, say, Barnsley was up in Middlesbrough and you might have had Strudders who was in... Uh, Coventry and then Tom Little was maybe in Wigan so you know disparate groups and uh, Nev's obviously in, in, in Birmingham but it, it was difficult to find 
lots of people who are doing your job and network. Um, but as the years grew on, I suppose, yeah, I, I should have got out a lot more than I did um, in order to build that network. Whereas nowadays, I'm networking every single day. Is that, just coming on to that, that's probably brings on nicely to the, the personal skills. Coming to you, Nevs, is that something that you naturally did along the way in terms of the networking? Or is that something that's kind of, you've, you've built on now? Um, how, how do you feel about that in terms of the, the, the networking side of things as you've come through your experience? Probably, possibly one of the main differences now is the, the huge amount of resource that's available to young practitioners coming in. I suppose when we started in in the late 90s or early 2000s, there, there probably there wasn't the variety of university courses, for example. Um, there wasn't as much published information as there is now in lots of different forms. So I think the the young guys now coming through have such a huge resource and therefore for them to create their own identity, it's kind of influenced by a number of factors. And I think from a personal skills perspective, um, identifying what you are and what you mean and what you stand for and, and developing your own practice and standing by that practice because you can easily be influenced by a number of different things. But I suppose the minute you come become... Uh, you, you you come away from your authenticity, if you like, then it, it's harder for you to to be consistent in your practice. So um, <clears throat> that's probably one of the main changes, I suppose, over the years. Um, but that would be my one of my recommendations from a personal skills development point of view is to you know create your own way of doing things and um, learn, network, and networking is is possibly easier now as Dave said you know whether I was on the south coast or Dave was over in the east and so on and and obviously Chris up north it was you know it wasn't always easy to to get around and 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 that at that time you used to wait until the away games and you'd bump into whoever the away team fitness coach was you'd have a chat for five or ten minutes and so on and that was essentially what networking was but now of course there's a, a whole ream of different resources plus conferences and so on that you can um you can take advantage of so and it uh you know those conversations and sometimes those small conversations i think are the ones that you just pick little tips of information from and you you build your repertoire of of um, skills do you think that's obviously a positive that there's there's more resources out there but do you think it sometimes creates a bit of an echo chamber that because there are so many people out there it often leads to people doing a lot of the same stuff I'm not saying it's wrong but it just becomes a little bit vanilla in what people are doing whereas before when you were kind of not in touch with anyone for maybe weeks on end you'd have to figure your own stuff out and you, you would become that individual practitioner rather than a clone of maybe someone else that you've followed or seen on the internet or seen a video of or been to a conference with yeah i agree i, I think just as i said i think it's important to create your own identity and and there are loads of resources there and it is easy to get confused with all these resources and just do what everybody else is doing. But creating your own identity is important. You know, we're all different personalities and we'll bring different characteristics to whatever practice we have. Um, I think that's important to be authentic to what you are um, and to build your practice around that. Um, and sometimes that can be hard. And, and like, as you quite rightly say, I think if there's loads of resource, you could be easily influenced by what everybody else is doing. Whereas, 
it's important to look dig into the detail and say, well, why are they doing that? And does that work for me in my practice with my club in the ge- geographic that I've got to work with? Mm-hmm. Just going coming to you, Barnsley, in terms of associations, given your association with, with bases, what's, from, from your opinion, with the, with the rise of associations like um, bases, UKCA, et cetera, are they, and this, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, obviously you're, you're associated with these people, but are you, are they doing positive things for the modern practitioner? Is that, is that a positive thing that's helping guiding them in terms, in terms of their education? Or again, going back to what Nev said, is that, is the information that's out there from these type of associations adding to the, the kind of noise that is out there? Yeah, I mean, I think, if you look at the you know, the typical makeup of a um, a support department or a performance department, and I include the coaches in that as well, because you know everybody's trying to get the best out of players. Um, up until very recently, we we've had a situation where um, there is um, a degree of management of the requirements for coaches. So we know, for example, now that. Uh, head coaches or managers uh, must have or be working towards a pro license. And then you look within the medical department and there are definite and understandable requirements for for doctors and physiotherapists. Uh, and these are all sets of professional qualifications that are required. But the reality is, is that for the performance people, physical performance people, so fitness coaches, SMC coaches, um, there really aren't any requirements at all. And if a manager was so inclined, he could employ his brother or um, a friend of his to come in and actually carry out that role. So the reason that um, I have been quite committed in the last few years to pursuing an agenda with professional bodies is to try and ensure that there is enforced professionalization on our aspect um, of this particular team. Uh, just in order that a professional standards are imposed, uh, but secondly, that so that we're actually viewed with a degree of parity. You know, it, it doesn't really matter how many of our colleagues, our peers, have PhDs and uh, academic qualifications to coaches and to players. Um, but in my experience, um, it's the professional qualifications that they see more relevance and more value in so so my agenda is very much built around that just going back to the the kind of standards that are put in place when it comes to managers is that making it and i'm guessing i haven't been on these courses but i'm i'm pretty certain that it is there's obviously a big physical aspect and a lot of the i suppose the sports science theory is is now translated onto the, the head coach or the manager. So they do have an insight where maybe 20 or 30 years ago that may not have been there. Is that making it easier or harder for the modern practitioner working with the modern manager? In my view, it, it makes it both easier and harder. So fundamentally, I think the role of the uh, the physical performance practitioner is is, is twofold and uh, i mean first of all we've got to utilize the contact time we have with players efficiently and effectively so and and the amount of contact time we get will vary from uh, culture to culture club to club system to system but then 
We have another role, which is to ensure that coaches and managers uh, are provided with appropriate information, which is calibrated according to their philosophies, their needs and their requirements. And the modern coach, as you, as you well say, Rob, um, actually comes in with their own basket of information. So a huge challenge that we face is to almost be something of a chameleon. You know, I mean, we, we know that the job of a head coach or a manager uh, in today's uh, day and age isn't the most secure. And we might find ourselves working in one season with three different managers uh, with totally different beliefs and philosophies and totally different levels of knowledge uh, of the physical requirements of the game. And our task is to actually reinvent ourselves or recalibrate the information just to ensure that we best align with them. Because otherwise, uh, we might be creating all of this information um, that actually has no, um, it has no end point. Just coming back to you, Dave, obviously been with, with Gary at, um, at Derby and then together again at Stoke. How is that relationship, young manager, young enthusiastic manager, obviously up to date with probably the, the, the kind of new wave of young English manager, I guess? How does that working with him compare in terms of the, the information, the knowledge that he has from a physical point of view with maybe going back 15 years with the managers that you worked with previously? Has that made it, going back to the question I asked Barnsley, is that easier now or harder now from a, for a physical performance coach? I don't think it's necessarily harder or easier. I think it's different. Um, some of the experiences that you had with, um, say, the first manager I worked with in football, Bruce Rioch, uh, Bruce had been through some highly innovative stages of his career. He, he had been both as a player in the old days with, with Derby and had trained really, really hard. His background was a military background. He was used to pushing players. Um, uh, so he, he was quite comfortable in the in the early days where we weren't particularly about load management back in those days. It was just about trying to get the players as fit as possible and hoping that they didn't break. Um, so Bruce was certainly someone who was open to having suggestions to him um based on his experiences what we have nowadays with someone like gary is he's he's gone through that process of working with sports scientists when they were players um and that's something we have to take into account as practitioners as well that a lot of the modern managers have been dealing with a lot of us um and they've actually potentially had far more experiences of different um sports scientists than potentially we may have had with different managers um to to, to some extent um, but certainly with the modern manager, with the way the courses are structured, they are being continually fed the latest information with regard to performance and all the different aspects of that. Um, the innovative ones are constantly looking for an edge and are willing to explore those. So whether it's through psychology, physiology, um, nutrition and so on. Um, and, and certainly working with Gary, um, I don't mind telling you a story about my interview with him uh, when I went up to meet him in um, in Birmingham. Uh, one of the main questions he asked me was, do you believe in running? And, and I thought, right, this is a really interesting question because effectively you could be on a knife edge here. You could fall one side or the other side of this potential uh, relationship based on your answer. Um, and I said, yeah, I, I fully believe in, in isolated running as a form of conditioning. It's, it's important for performance and it's important for robustness. And his answer was perfect because that's something I believe in. 
So it's a manager who had a philosophy about the way he wanted to train and condition players, and that matched with my philosophy. But going back to what um, Chris said earlier, working with different managers requires you at different times to be able to amend or augment your philosophy about how you want to work. Um, I use the analogy of a palm tree. You've, you've got to have roots in something, but you've got to be able to be flexible depending if the wind changes direction. You may have some non-negotiables that are your roots that you, you're just not going to compromise on. Um, and, and managers will have those as well. But there's bits that you're going to have to be flexible on in your philosophy. And the modern manager, similar to how he'll employ his tactical philosophy, should expect you to be able to change your physical or performance philosophy as as needs might. Coming back to you, Nevs, in terms of that flexibility of, of philosophy, and I'm, I don't know the numbers exactly, but coming through the, the back end of your time at Blackburn, there was quite a turnaround of of, um, of managers. What was the what were the things that you were willing to be a little bit more flexible on, depending on the um, depending on the philosophy of the manager? And was there anything in there that you thought, no matter who comes in, this is not this can't change. This has to be the same. Uh, yeah, well. 20 managers at the last count, I think. Um, <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, um, but of course, I'm, all have <laughs> strengths. I mean, you mentioned Blackburn there. In my time in Blackburn, I worked with Michael Appleton initially and then and then Gary Bowyer, um, Owen Coyle, Paul Lambert, and, uh, and then Tony very briefly. And um, all had strengths. And, and, you know, some had come through the... The more modern way, if you like, had been managers. Um, and sorry, had been players and come through the more modern exposure to what sports science was about. Um, in Paul's case, he spent a lot of time in Germany, so he had some influence from German models that he brought over, which he, he talked about. Um, of course, in Tony's case, had been actually come through Middlesbrough with Barnsley's um, club. So. Um, you know, and all had different strengths. So I think it, from our perspective, from when I first started and the new manager came in, I get, I get kind of get a bit tied up with what do they want and, and how do I do it and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and in the end, as Dave quite rightly says, I think you do what you think is, is right and you think, well, this is my way of doing it. Um, ultimately, if they like that way of doing it, then great. If they don't, then I can't really change my way too much but at the same time ultimately we want the same thing we want to get as many players available for the manager's choice on a Friday afternoon as possible um, he needs to put the strongest team he can out so ultimately we're, we're, we're aiming for the same outcome and it's just how we get there and I think that's down to a number of factors communication relationships building relationships understanding two ways you know, what kind of information do I give? How do I give it? How do I communicate it? And how's that, how is that going to affect um, both training and, uh, and selection of the, of the players? So um, I think that's the, that's the key to the number of managers, if you like, and understanding new philosophies or new management requirements is um, understanding how, to, how best to communicate what they want. And ultimately, we're there to support the players. We're there to support the management team. Um, and we need to quickly understand what the requirements are. But as Dave quite rightly says, you know, we, we have our roots. And um, if I went too far away from my roots, then I'd 
I'd lose that identity I was talking about before and, and uh, come away from my own philosophy and then you're kind of in no man's land a bit. Um, was there any times where you thought, I'm going to have to budge here? And and I, obviously we've all got mortgages, all got families, um, all got bills to pay. Is there anything, any, any, ex, any uh, examples you can give us where you thought, I'm going to have to budge on my non-negotiable just because I'm, I have to, this is just, you know, this is how it's going to be. I, th- I think you have to, yeah, because of the fact that sometimes a manager is going to make a statement, you know, um, and, and there's a political game going on as well. You know, the, the manager needs the players on board. He's got to balance up, you know, the reason that a new manager might be in the building is because the other manager has left. Um, so very quickly, that manager needs to get the players on board to help him try and win some football games quickly. And sometimes the players can be really clever in manipulating that situation in order to get rid of something that they don't like or add something that they do want. So, for example, if you had a a, a philosophy of doing leg weights, say, on a Thursday, for example, um, some players will cleverly manipulate that situation to say, we hate doing weights on a Thursday. Now, if that's one of your key philosophies, you can either change, say, no, we firmly believe in this and I'm not changing, but that might mean you get changed. So <laughs> that that's something that you might just have to bite the bullet with um, and have to wait some time to then reintroduce that by um, education of the manager as to why you built that in. Um, I think it's always, it frustrates I think everybody who works in performance, when they see a manager go into a new situation, and one of the key things they criticize straight away is conditioning or fitness, um, if you want to use layman's terms, um, without really exploring what was going on before they got there to manifest the, the, the situation that they see. Um, and, and if they took the time to do that, they'd understand that why that philosophy was in place. Um, and that might be something that you have to be flexible on at the start. So we're just going to take a very quick break in this senior football roundtable. So over in part two, we discuss working the different managers, understanding what's needed and what you may have to do to change in, in terms of philosophies and actually day-to-day work under different managers. Um, sports technology and the, the influence that's having on modern practitioners, um, the due diligence process. Um, Nev, uh, Chris Neville goes into um, a lot of detail on the procedures they used at Blackburn to make sure things that they were potentially going to purchase were the right things and they were going to fit into the overall system that they created. And finally, moving out of full-time football um, and the reasons that a couple of guys, um, or all the guys, uh, have done that. So really interesting part two coming up. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So they've had some recent um, really interesting projects with Ulster Rugby and the Irish um, national team in uh, down in Dublin. So they've, they've kitted their, uh, both their gyms out with some unbelievable, um, unbelievable kit, flooring, racks, platforms, um, dumbbells, etc. the whole works. So if you are interested in a full gym fit out or just wanting to get add-ons to what you've already got, whether it be bars, plates, 
uh, dumbbells, etc. Make sure you check out the guys at Black Box and you can see some of their recent projects, two of which I've just mentioned, the Irish Rugby one and the Ulster Rugby one. Head over to their Instagram, uh, got lots of decent stuff on their Instagram, and that is at BLKBoxFitness. Uh, and you can also get on their website and order things online, uh, and that's uh, BLKBoxFitness.com. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. Just coming to you, Barnsey. In terms of the data side of things and dealing with, we've, we've kind of touched on the modern manager, but dealing with the modern player when it be, when it comes to the data and the data that we're generating and feeding that back to to the player, so they actually know that the the time and the effort that they're giving up to be able to generate this data is actually doing something. How difficult is that with the modern player? Or is it a lot easier because they are, this is their world, they've got phones, they're generating data all the time anyway. Is that changed over time, do you think? Or is that is that an easy transition to, to uh, well, work with or not? I think, obviously, today, you know, we, we collect and create and generate an awful lot more data than we ever have done. Uh, from the point of view of the player, though, you know this this information is is created for a purpose, and um, in my experience, players hate to be thought of as guinea pigs. Um, so the first thing is don't collect information or data, and then not provide the opportunity for the players to access that information themselves. Uh, I think the second thing is, is that, uh, and it goes back to what uh, both Chris and Dave have been saying, uh, we have a responsibility to, uh, to develop healthy relationships with players. And sometimes this information, this data is, well, most of the time, it is best conveyed in private, where you can actually engage in a dialogue. So... In my mind, there are very few occasions when I would be comfortable posting information on the notice board in the dressing room. Uh, the vast majority of players are most definitely turned off with, uh, with that. Uh, so we like to try and establish a culture where, the, and not every player is interested, but where those players that are actually interested and engaged um, can actively seek you out uh, and you're not just presenting them with numbers because numbers are meaningless on, in isolation, but you actually have a narrative and you have a context uh, to apply to it. Um, you said, Rob, that obviously we, we live now in a, uh, a day and age where people are very comfortable with information and data and players are definitely no exception to that. Uh, most most of them are really intelligent beings. They wouldn't be doing what they're doing if they weren't. And actually their understanding 
not just of the numbers and the football side of things, but their understanding of things in relation to nutrition and training theory um, is uh, pretty advanced. And so some of these conversations you can have with them actually can be, can be fairly uh, deep. The one other thing I would say about data while, while we're on to this is um, I think we are still learning how best to manage this vast wealth of information that we create and generate. And there are times when we're a little bit uncomfortable because actually there's no story in the information. So what did we expect to see? Well, we've seen what we expected to see. Players are busy people. Coaches are busy people. If there isn't actually a message to give, let's not bother them and waste their time when actually they could be receiving information that is much more uh, significant and important. And so we have to actually have the courage, first of all, to identify when information is important. And secondly, if it isn't, just to sit back and shut up and let the other more important elements uh, take priority. Yeah, I think I think this is where Age 10 can come in and like show you a really good way of presenting data. <laughs> That's my adver- advert for the evening, lads. Sorry about that. <laughs> I had to get that in. Um, I, I, you know, I'm in the sales game now, but um, I, th- I think Chris is exactly right there. I think the modern player, the whatever they want to be called, the Generation Z or the post millennial, you know, they want they want information and they want it fast, and they're used to dealing with it. Um, but they're far more interested in, in the me than the we. Uh, I think that back in the day, everybody wanted all the information on the notice board because it was a source of banter at the time. You know, when um, when somebody's body fat was in the red, you know, that was it. They were getting crucified by the group. Whereas you put that up now, and it's like a you know, it's a safeguarding issue. Somebody you know is going to going to be upset, and that's going to affect the performance on a Saturday, and you're getting blamed for it. You know, I think uh, Seth Golden sends it says it really well he says people don't want email anymore they want me mail they they want it all about them and they want it now and they want it how they want it so i think the the modern practitioner yes he needs to collect the data and not all the data you're going to collect is necessarily going to be used acutely straight away you know i think there's there is a fear that people say oh you know what's the point of collecting data if you're not going to use it but I think there's also an argument for sometimes we don't know how this data is going to be used until maybe a little bit further down the line. So I'm not I'm not totally um, against collecting data, which might be a little bit more longitudinal or chronic in its um, its, its application. Um, but certainly, players nowadays, um, you know, reports going to them on on WhatsApp or direct message or via apps or however they want to integrate with the the information we have with them. I think we need to be ready to serve that. And and that's certainly one of the the skills I think us older practitioners have had to learn, which is, you know, these disruptive technologies and um, how players consume information. We've had to morph to be able to to kind of go to their to their landscape and be able to explore their landscape as opposed to expect them to come to ours because this is how we did it with Word and Excel 20 years ago is now being done on an app and via some kind of dashboard. Do you think, though, Dave, it's, um, you know, it's important for, you know, we are data rich um, and to some degree maybe relational relationship or individualization poor. So um, do you think it's, a, you know, it's again, a balance between you know, having good relationships and solid, sound relationships with players and coaches and 
supporting that with data than just purely on you know data and, and, and spreadsheets and stuff because I think let's take wellness as an example you know we've we've all been there with iPads or whatever and you know we've got we've got our wellness questions filled out every morning but you know you can quite easily sit with somebody at breakfast and have a chat about and you learn more about that individual person and and what's going on in their life and and you think well actually that's more meaningful really to this person and the way I help manage that person um through their training day than than actually filling it which, which seems quite cold filling an ipad in telling me that he slept for five hours last night but the fact i've just had breakfast with him and he's told me that the baby hasn't slept you know for the last week is more meaningful and personal absolutely i think you're spot on chris you know and i think we've all been uh, around those situations where the player feels that they have have far more uh, value in a relationship because it's been based off real conversations and natural conversations then not then sometimes you know the only reason you're speaking to me is because i filled out a wellness form that told you to speak to me as opposed to a natural conversation when the player comes in in the morning uh, they, they want to know that you're looking after their their whole person rather than just the data set that they created um you know and and knowing about people's relationships, their children, you know, the health of their children and so on, allows you to have better conversations. I'd still rather, um, from my own end, and I'm sure both Chris's would, would back this up, that, you know, you could do without a lot of the tech and a lot of the numbers if you could have more of the relationships and more of the conversations. Yeah, but I totally, I totally agree with you there, Dave. Um, I think... Yeah, and the the word relationship has been mentioned so many times, and I think uh, over the years, all three of us, um, uh, for all of us, uh, the value of good and solid relationships uh, has has been at the forefront. Hopefully, of what we're trying to do. Interestingly, though, uh, I think we're all aware that in a football club, as in most organisations, there is a definite hierarchy, um, and at the top of this hierarchy in a football club. Uh, on the football side of the business is the manager. And very often we're in a situation where um, the manager's opinion counts for everything, whether or not he can back that up. And on, on a lot of occasions, you know, if the manager feels like a certain player may well have been under par, or he, you know, he didn't, he didn't bother at all in training today. Sometimes this data that we have can actually help us have a, uh, an equal conversation with a manager where without the data or the information, uh, his opinion would definitely trump ours at time. So it could be that we can actually present information to say, actually, if you look at you know, physical outputs of this player in training today, uh, they're where they, we would have expected them to be. He's, uh, he's actually, you know, his outputs are actually greater than a number of the squad. So really, you know, if it's a problem, let's review the video of training and see if there's other reasons why um, perhaps his player came across as um, performing below what you might have expected. Given all that and the fact that we've mentioned relationships a lot of times, when it comes to employing staff, would it be a little bit more, well, quite accurate to say that when you've got to a certain point in, in terms of education, it's actually a lot about, given, given the interaction we're having with players and how important that is, building relationships with managers, etc., personality, and yeah, I suppose personality 
actually forms a huge part. And this could be said in any job, but even more in what we've been talking about in either getting employed or not getting employed. Would you say that was quite accurate, uh, Ness? Um Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, uh, one of the reasons I came into uh, to, to my current role at the university um, from coming out of football was that um, towards the end of my time at Blackburn, we often get lots of CVs um, from really good theoretical uh, students that had really good underpinning to their education and got some good undergraduate degrees behind them and so on. Um, and most of them had done their some work experience and, and got their part-time job and so on. And, and the, But there wasn't any differentiator between them all. And I think um, the balance between having relevant work experience for young practitioners trying to get into football now and uh, utilising their, their experience with some personality characteristics is, is important. So, you know, I, when I've interviewed people in the past, I, I, I take it for granted that they've got their sports science degree or whatever we're employing for. I take it for granted they've done some work experience. I want to know a little bit more about them. You know, what, what have you done away from here? Have you, you know, climbed a mountain, done some charity work, voluntary work, and so on and so forth? And what, what tell me a little bit about you as a person. Because, you know, we, we live together for 10 months a year. Um, we work very closely with other departments. Um, you need to be able to work in a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary teams. Um, and as we said, you know, conversations and being able to form relationships is important. So um, as, as much as the academic stuff is important, then I think also the, the, the way we um, use that uh, in, our, in our personalities is important. So going back to the university, what we've tried to do with, with the course that we started last year is to give our students some real authentic learning opportunities in, in the football environment so that they've got some real usable skills and they're able to transfer some of their, their personality into, an, into a realistic environment but under supervision. I'll come back to you in a minute, Dave. Just going come to you first, Barnsley. In terms of employing someone, employing a performance coach, whether it be sports science, training and conditioning, I don't suppose it, it makes any difference. But in terms of that personality, would you um, go along with Nevs in terms of um, how important it is that people have actually got experience outside of football and doing, like Nevs said, about the charity work or the climbing a mountain? It, how important would that be for you if you were on the other side of the desk interviewing people? Uh, personally, um, that is probably uh, of more importance to me, or definitely of more importance to me, than whether they have a first-class degree or a 2-2 degree. Um, at the end of the day, these people are um, person-facing in what can be a, a challenging and a pretty brutal industry at times uh, when things are not going well. And I think what you do need uh, in your armory is uh, a soft skill set that goes way beyond that you get from a traditional, I guess, educational route. And it's, it would be, you know, it's really nice to hear people talk about. So a typical question would be, you know, tell me how you've dealt with adversity in the past. Talk me through a particular challenge that you've faced and how you've managed it and dealt with it. Uh, and you'd be surprised when you ask questions like that. And they are challenging questions, but you'd be surprised how many people uh, struggle to come up with uh, real examples. So for certain, uh, in 
in my view. Uh, it is the, if you like, the extra, extracurricular experiences um, that absolutely differentiate between the, the people that we see. What do you think, Dave, just to finish off on this point before we move on? Yeah, I think it's common knowledge now. We're looking for people with really good soft skills, but you've got to question where these people are going to access the ability to learn them if uh, university courses are not providing any way of um, of students learning what these soft skills are. And um, certainly Nev, I know with his, with his course, is, is looking to have a, a form of, of real work experience that's going to benefit people. Um, how can you tell whether someone's going to be good when they come to interview? Um, I certainly would put more store in somebody coming to me with really good soft skills than whether they've done a master's or they're enrolled on a doctorate. Um, I think we're too keen to get onto the academic ladder to, to reach the pinnacle of that before we've developed the ability to work with uh, players and managers and be able to, to, to really have the art of what we do before we have more of the science of what we do. Um, it, it, it's, it's, like the, um, it's like the sales game. People buy off people. And every day when we go to the gym or onto the pitch, we, we are selling our training philosophy and we're, we're selling our way of we want to work with the players and we're selling that to the coach and we're selling that to the players. And that is all soft skills. Um, and I think certainly with the, uh, with the aging practitioner, that all three of us are, um, we offer great um, opportunity for university courses and for practitioners who are in in practice and are young or less experienced to benefit off that. You know, so certainly education and academia and the younger practitioners should be trying to get mentorship from the uh, the older generation because. Rather than trying to jump onto a doctor and a professional doctorate, actually just spending a year or two in some kind of mentorship program with an experienced practitioner will serve you far better in your career than just trying to jump onto, you know, the, the next course that's being run, which might get you, yeah, might get you an interview because you've reached the uh, desirable level on the job application. But when you sit in front of people like any of the three of us, we're going to be finding out about you as a person. And I think uh, Chris put it perfectly, you know, whether you've got a first or a two-two, I'd take a person with a two-two with better people skills than somebody who's got a first-class master's or doctorate who can't deal with people. Excellent. So coming to the, th the final point, and it would be wrong of me not to mention sports technology given – uh, your current role, Dave, and obviously your consultancy gig, Barnsley, consultant at, at Catapult. <laughs> Just say that a couple of times. <laughs> you said you don't use consultancy. <laughs> so we'll go, and this was this is a debate because this is how it goes now. A little, well, not a debate, but a little talking point on um, on Twitter with regard with regarding practitioners' due diligence when it comes to the purchase of sports technology. So I'm going to come to you first, Dave. Come back to you first. As a, in your experience of, of probably keeping the last month or two aside from your work at Edge Ten, okay. Do you th do you think do you think that practitioners, on the whole, on in in general, um, are 
doing their due diligence enough when it comes to spending money on sports technology or going back right to the start because there's so much information out there nowadays with sharing what people are doing are we very quickly get getting caught in the echo chamber of wanting to keep up with the club down the road um yeah there's a few answers to that brief answer is no we don't do enough due diligence um, why do I say that? I think there's a little bit of a sheep mentality that goes on. Um, people see other people use other things. Uh, that shortens the the learning cycle um, because you can just piggyback on what other people have done and very quickly you can accelerate to being not far behind them. I think um, over the years I've been in clubs where you go in and when you question why the technology is in the building, um, it's it's almost the answer is why not um and and i think that's a that's a a bad way to start i think whatever tech we're bringing into the building should be looking to answer a question and i know that's been that's been in every podcast that's been on probably out of the 250 you've done rob i'm sure it's come up in every single one but it's got to be answering a question that you need answered um now especially when it comes to um, something like, say, GPS or force plates or whatever, I think people will get sold a product um, rather than sometimes making the company sell them the product. Um, so where it comes to competitors in the same space, you don't find people who are doing almost a tender process for that. Um, and it's certainly the same when it comes to contract renewals. Um, very rarely do you see people switch from provider to provider. Um, it only tends to happen in a club when a practitioner changes, in my opinion. So you've got to ask, well, are you up to date or are you just embedded with a company? Uh, and I know it'll upset lots of the companies by saying that, but I think uh, every two to three years, you should be reflecting on whether the current provider is giving you what you need to answer the questions that you want. Barnsley, coming over to you, do you feel that's, do you, do you agree with Dave on that? I totally agree with Dave. Um, and if it's okay with you, I'll answer this with my uh, in-club hat and not my <laughs> kind of club hat on. Absolutely. Um, I mean, any, anybody who's working in a professional sports environment um, will, will know the number of people that come knocking on your door with something that's going to improve the performance of your athletes by 5%, 10%, 20% or whatever. The, the first point I would make is it's, it's amazing how many pieces of technology people are pushing towards us that they can't provide any form of independent validation for. So if, if most technology and most, not all, but most technology is actually just an intermediary to create information to help inform performance, then that information has to be validated. And an internal validation from the, com uh, from the company, okay, it's information, but you've got to question the degree to which you can necessarily trust it. I think there's a number of technologies that uh, I've come across over the years where um, the, the algorithms that create information are a tightly held secret. And it may just be me, but I, it always creates a sense of skepticism in myself. If these people, if, if I can't fully understand uh, the principle on which this information's uh, being created, 
Uh, I'm never really comfortable with anybody who wants me to take a piece of equipment if they won't let me trial it myself and give it uh, a good scene to in, in our own environment to, uh, to, to determine. <laughs> uh, to, uh, I don't want to ask what you're doing, really, Chris, you know, but, you know. It, it, it may be. Really. Really um, <laughs> I guess, the, you know, I, I don't want to talk about specific or go into detail, but uh, the point that you made earlier, Rob, is, is absolutely right in that everybody's looking over their, their shoulder. The reality is, is that if you were to go into most football clubs, if not all football clubs in the top three or four tiers in this country, everybody's actually doing the same thing. They might be using slightly different tools, but they're all trying to do the same thing. And the real craft isn't in how you actually create information, but the real craft is in how you actually use and apply that information and make it applicable to the environment in, in which you inhabit. So the technology is nothing more than a tool uh, in the same way that I've got a hammer that helped me build a jet a few weeks ago. <laughs> Just going to you, Nevs, your time at, at Blackburn going through this process, because I know that it is a process that you did go through. Um, is that something that you revisited while you were there in terms of the, the kind of big expenditure that you um, outlaid on sports tech? Yeah. So w- when I first got there, they'd just been through that process. Um, so Mark Howard uh, was there a year or so before uh, with Chris Rush, and they'd been through that process. And then um, in 2013, we, we reviewed really where we were and what we were using and what we were needing. Um, and we didn't ultimately we didn't want to spend money unnecessarily if it wasn't going to inform what we did and and improve the way we did things and sometimes sim- simplifying things is is actually a bit more powerful than just overcomplicating and um so we, we we actually got rid of some stuff that we hadn't used um we did a little bit of due diligence on um on gps and and how we used it and what we needed from it um and renewed a, a contract with with Chris's consultancy business and then we <laughs> <laughs> and then we looked at other other areas of the way we did things and um we quickly binned some stuff as, as you know we like Chris said we contacted a few companies which we were potentially interested in what they were doing they offered us a solution um although they didn't necessarily know what the problem was in the first place um, <laughs> I love it but they uh, and we we tried a few things out. One of one of which we used, um, and the others we we didn't think it would inform our practice enough, so we didn't use it. Um, and as Barnsley quite rightly says, you know, it's producing white papers is internally is is one thing, but actually having some form of external validation is is more powerful, of course. And so that's part of the process that that, that we went through. But I think it's a valuable thing to do, not necessarily all the t- every six months or every year or whatever, but I think. You know, it's uh, it's definitely a valuable thing to do as as technology moves on and becomes more informing. Then I think we should should do that. Really, I'm going to drop this on you now, Nevs, and apologies for for not kind of lining you up first. But in terms of like a almost like a guide, like a step by step guide, that like four or five points that you would recommend practitioners go through from um, when they've got Tech GPS, for example, because that seems what everyone's got from um you know thinking yes this is what we need 
to actually signing the the contract where it you know it gets done. What's that? Is it five or six points or three or four points in that time period that you would recommend everyone go through? Um. Well, in our case at Blackbird, so we uh, so Rob Hayworth worked worked with us, and and who um, now works for for Catapult actually. He he'd um, produced a an algorithm based report um, which we found really useful. Um, and of course, it's not just us. You know, GPS data, for example, um, is used not just by the athletic performance department, but also the medical department and the coaching department, and so on, um, and at the academy. So. You know, in our case, we were producing a report which was not just affecting one department, but affecting three or four. So it was a certainly an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary uh, conversation, not just ours. So I think that's that's important to identify who uses this information and how do they use it. Um, secondly, it's um, then identifying um, what data do we need from this piece of tech. Um, so can we get that from another system? Uh, do we need more information? Is it not providing what we need? Speaking to the coaching department, of course, you know, if you look at a broader picture or a bigger picture, um, you know, in, in Blackburn's case, we worked at one stage with two or three managers over a, a relatively short period of time. And of course, their requirements are slightly different. So we're trying to uh, look at the bigger picture and say, well, actually, what information is relevant to every manager that comes in? What information would be relevant to some, um, and what information wouldn't be relevant? So it's identifying the, the variables that you need. Uh, cost effectiveness, of course, you know the, the change in environment of clubs, um, promotions, relegations, possibly, um, you know, are the club willing to invest? Uh, do they need to cut cut their cloth accordingly? So obviously that has to come into consideration. So I think that's probably point three or four. Um, and then the expertise within the department. So who's actually going to use this information? Have you got the expertise to make the best of, of the situation? If you haven't, then what sort of training is needed? What sort of um, you know, courses do you uh, I think there's some, some reports recently about the use of you know big, big data and, and analytics and so on. And, read something today about you know most clubs have got big data analytics going on now and and so it's how do we you know how do we use those practitioners and Rob Hayworth's case at Blackburn you know Rob was very much um, uh, skilled in in statistics and maths and and although had a sports science degree he's uh, he was very very good at doing that so he understood the numbers very quickly could produce reports that were meaningful to us very quickly which was which is very important. So I think having the skilled practitioners is probably the, the fourth point. Excellent. So I'm going to come back to you, Dave, and I'm going to go through each uh, one of you individually because each of you have moved away from uh, directly working in professional sport, uh, whether it be on a consultancy basis, Barnsley. Um, Not or, necessarily uh, through choice, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good, though. Don't worry about no it. No problem it's, at all. We're all fine. We're all fine. Um, yeah, just coming to you first, Dave, is, would you, and in your specific case, because maybe it wasn't your choice, would you, um, and this is not, not to encroach on your current role, but is, is getting back in something that you would like to do? Is this offering you something else that you maybe hadn't planned, but is going to benefit you in the future, given, 
um, the role that you've got, more kind of business orientated, more, maybe seeing a lot more practitioners, what they're doing. What is it actually giving you this this role and would, is it going to benefit you in the future? I think before talking about my role, I, I think there's there's a wider point to be made about your role in the game is um, as scientists, all great science has come through innovation. Somebody's tried to do something that's different. Um, that you know, it's easy to copy what everyone else has done, and therefore you're just you know you're not really adding much to to science. You're just you know carrying out the same experiments that somebody else did, or you're applying the same theories and the algorithms that Chris talked about. So I think we have a role within our jobs to be innovative and to look for potentially disruptive technologies as well. And that's certainly something I've learned in this role. I've, I've got to see some amazing things that are going on around the world um, with our client base, with my with Edge 10. Um, stuff that you're not seeing on social media. And I think that's a real, a real interesting point in that all the stuff that you're seeing on social media is probably either behind the curve or somebody trying to build their brand, so to speak. The really good guys aren't actually putting their stuff on social media because they're too busy being innovative and trying to do something different that they haven't got time to be sharing it with everyone. And they're actually trying to find a cutting edge. So no disrespect, but you won't see Barnsley and you won't see Nev and you won't see Struds or Sam Erith, the really top guys. Uh, notice I didn't include myself in there. Um, <laughs> you won't see them posting anything about what they do. You won't see Darren Burgess talking about what he does. Um, they're off doing great work quietly and getting on with it. So I think there's a lesson there for a lot of younger practitioners who are really keen to kind of promote what they're doing. Coming back to um, where I am now, I think if you're going to push the edge, sometimes you're going to fall over the edge. Um, and I, I don't mean that as a link to age 10, but you know, you, you've got to be willing to, to potentially fail to do good work. Um, if you're going to be safe, you will be safe, but you, you probably won't really progress too far. You'll probably stay in your job and not end up like me having to spend four or five months looking for the next opportunity. Um, but with the opportunity at age 10, it gives me a chance to come out of the sport, look around, approach my work from a different way. So if the opportunity does come to go back into a role, I'm going to be far stronger and I'm going to be asking very, very different questions now of staff that I'm going to be working with. Because seeing that around the world, whether it's teams in the AFL, NFL, NBA, National Hockey League, um, Finnish Olympic Committee, the, the work that people aren't seeing because they're in their football bubble and thinking that they're doing good stuff, they're going to be left behind because they don't know what's going on elsewhere. So, um, you know, I've got very interesting questions. Should I ever go back into a club to ask of the staff that I'm potentially going to inherit um, or the ones that I'm going to interview to come into roles? Because um, the landscape is changing, but the people who are currently just doing what they're doing and not getting their head up, not going out and learning from new sources um, are going to be left behind. And I, I think now as a modern practitioner, I know I'm droning on here a bit, but as a because our life's our lifespan at the top is getting shorter and shorter, and certainly for the the homegrown practitioner, the opportunities at the top of the game are less. We're going to be far more cutthroat with the support staff that we need. We need people who are going to be pushing the 
the levels. Um, and I'd certainly think from my experience in age 10 and what I've seen, we've got lots to learn as an industry about how we can be doing things better and different. Love it, Dave. Coming to you, Nevs, what was your, what was your story about coming out and would you ever get back in, in football? Like- uh, I think, Rob, I'm, I'm really lucky. I, I've got um, part of the role at the university is we have relationships with clubs by the nature of what we're trying to do in, in terms of giving young people the opportunity to to learn authentically in the environment and in the industry. So, you know, I'm lucky there that I can go into clubs with that and do a little bit of um, work with individual clubs at the moment. Um, but I enjoy working with young people. You know, I've been very, very fortunate in, the, in my time in football, full-time football, um, to work with some brilliant people and managers. And if I can share some of that information to young people coming through, aspiring to get into what we do, then that's uh, that's all well and good. And but I think the industry is changing a lot. And I would never say that I'd never get back in because, you know, as I say, the industry is change changing and has changed, and roles have changed. So um, you, know, you never say never. But uh, at the moment, I you know, I'm, I'm very happy in, in helping uh, guide, if you like, to you know younger people. Mm-hmm. Banzi, last but not least. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I haven't worked full-time in football since uh, 2009, although, as I said uh, in the introduction, uh, I've continued an association with a number of clubs. What I didn't say then was what that what this has also allowed me to do is to uh, dip my toe into other sports. So I had four years with GB Basketball going into uh, the Olympics, uh, four years with uh, England Rugby League going to a World Cup, and then NFL, working with hockey's and all sorts of other things. And what it's made me realise is how how dangerous football can be in terms of you becoming quite a linear practitioner. So you get exposed to all of these, you know, and in the last 10 years I've been exposed to all sorts of other experiences and all sorts of other challenges um, which I definitely wouldn't have been exposed to if I'd stayed full-time in football doing the, and I think the standard is probably 60 or 70 hours a week without time to actually sit back and focus on where you are and where you're going. So as much as at the time, leaving full-time employment was really stressful, um, it has provided me with a whole host of opportunities in other countries, other cultures, engage with people employed in sports and football, and actually to map, and this has been really interesting, so map the journeys that um, sports science has taken in countries that um, when in 2009 were not quite as developed as the UK, but uh, have, have evolved very, very rapidly in a very short space of time. Excellent. Well, I'm eight minutes over than the hour that I promised. But just it's a little quality round information, though. Quality information, David. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. But just want to say, you know how much that eight minutes would cost you with Chris? That's expensive. Eight minutes with Barnsley. Which Barnsley Chris? means Barnsley. It does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's far, it's far less for me. And Nev, so we're, we're just, we're just. Yeah, so thank you very much for giving up your time. Really appreciate it. Sorry it's taken so long to actually get in the um, 
get in the books and, and get done. But yeah, thank can, you can very I, much. Rob, Rob, can I have a blue plaque now for I've been on Pacey Performance Podcast now, you know? Oh, what, sorry? A blue plaque? Do we get a blue plaque that we can put outside our I house need one. or something? If you find any, send one my way because I've got... <laughs> I'm going to get a tattoo. <laughs> That's excellent, you know. I was wondering like, whether you'd have to do that three versions with other people before you went to us old old people, you know? <laughs> Going for knowledge at the back end. 253, 54, whatever, whenever it'll come out. Hey, lads, we, we got in before a 1,000. Uh, I'm on it. Yes. <laughs> I'll be very great. The ginger will be going grey if I get to a 1,000. Jeez. But, yeah, thank you very much for your time on a Tuesday evening to have a little chat. And um, no doubt I will speak to you all soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. Cheers, Rob. Thanks, Thanks very much, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 257 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this is the third of a series of monthly roundtables that I've conducted over the last couple of months. First one being the hamstring roundtable, second one being the youth football roundtable, and this one obviously being the senior roundtable. So if you have enjoyed them, make sure you go through the back catalogue and uh, check out the first two that I've already done. But big thanks to Chris, Chris and Dave for giving their time and delving into a little bit of their experience and knowledge uh, they've accrued over the last God knows how many years between them. Also, big thanks to I Measure You, Hawking Dynamics, Black Box Fitness, and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. And then special thanks to the FA for supporting this podcast as well. So, like I say, got some um, great podcasts having which have just gone over the last few weeks but also got some really interesting ones a couple more from football from soccer over the next couple of weeks but also from a couple of other different sports as well so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and i will chat to you next week